Good morning. I'm doing the community prayer today. Thank you, darling. Let's bow our heads and let us pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this week. We remember the birth and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we've learned more about the work you've done in our behalf, your faithfulness. We might learn more what it means to live in light of your resurrection. Help us be your new creation, new community people. Help us be light wherever we go. Help us be the community that shares your love. Lord, I pray today filled with great restorations of new doors opening, bigger opportunities, and reign of blessing. I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Before I read the scripture today, I want to say something that was happened before the pandemic. I remember the first time, I still remember the first time when Darlene offered me to read the scripture. I was shocked at that moment and I don't know what to say. So instead of saying yes, I told her I wasn't ready yet. That's the word, that's the word I give to Darlene on that day. Then after a few days, I realized that it was God calling for me. So every time I see Darlene, I always ask myself when Darlene will offer when Darlene will offer to read me the scripture again. And that's the big question I always ask myself. When every time I see Darlene, and one day God answered that big question because I received a message from Darlene asking if I could read the scriptures again. I did not hesitate to accept Darlene's offer or invitation. I immediately said yes. Right away, I said yes. All I can say is when God calls us, we have to accept it wholeheartedly. Do it for his glory. We don't need to be ready because we don't know when God will call us again. Our scripture today is from the book of Romans 13, verses, verse 1 to 7. Sorry, I didn't get ready. First of all, then I urge that supplication prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high position, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. The second scripture from the book of 1 Timothy, verse 2, 1 to 4. 
Sorry. I got mixed up. I'm sorry. So this is the Roman 13. That the first one is the first Timothy chapter 2, 1 to 4. Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist has been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever receives the authorities receives what God has appointed, and those who receive will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to God conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servants for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger of carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoing. Therefore, one must be in subject, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of confidence. For because of this, you always pay taxes for the authorities are minister of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes, whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to, who, to whom honor is owed. This is the word of the Lord. The last three years have been exceedingly difficult for all of us. And it's good to be meeting together in this church. Uh, privileged to preach here and to share with you what God has laid on my heart. But it's been even a little bit more difficult for me because since the pandemic started, my ministry in Ukraine came to a halt. And one of the great delights of ministry for me was the relationships I developed as I taught young leaders, uh, mentored young leaders, and got involved with them. And then all of a sudden, not only was I kept from spending time with them, even though we could spend time with Zoom, with emails, with Skype, and all those great technical things but it's not the same of being there in person. And then, of course, when the war started and we began to see the horrific pictures on the news of the devastation, uh, see apartments torn apart, uh, I began to really grieve, not just for loss of ministry, but for people who'd become deeply um, part of my heart, uh, churches that I had been involved with. Basically, my ministry focuses on focused in four churches, two fronts, two churches in uh, Kiev, Awakening Church in Obolon, which is a rather upscale neighborhood of Kiev on the western side, and the, ch- the shelter, which was sort of an alternative church. It was for um, young families in their 20s and 30s uh, who wouldn't go to a traditional Baptist church. They probably would have felt uncomfortable here at Weston Park. Um, they met, first of all, uh, they were called the shelter, they called themselves the shelter, and they met, first of all, three stories down in a parking garage, and we saw lots of uh, blue smoke and all kinds of stuff in the worship service. 
but it was a church plant and it was reaching out to young families, uh, sort of an alternative worship service. That has now disappeared. Uh, they, because of the, the threat of war, because they were in Kiev, they are now spread throughout Europe. Whether they will return to, to Kiev again, we don't know. Uh, Kiev is still a dangerous place to be. Um, it has caused tremendous, uh, there's been tremendous upheaval of families, and probably the shelter uh, will be like the church in Jerusalem in the first century. They've been spread throughout Europe and probably will get involved in either church plants or other evangelical uh, church growth issues throughout uh, the, the neighboring countries of Europe. The one thing I want to do this morning is, first of all, I want to thank you for your very generous gift that you gave through Canadian Baptist Ministries for the situation in Ukraine. Uh, I work with Send International, and to date they have, through donors who've sent money into them, there's been over a million dollars given to help churches reach out with humanitarian aid. This is not for supporting pastors. We do that. It's not for supporting uh, Bible colleges. We do that. But mainly to help believers reach out to their neighborhoods, providing medicine, food, uh, hygiene supplies, all sorts of things that we take for granted that have been in scarcity at this point in Ukraine. I want to thank you for your generous gift that you gave. And many, many organizations, Christian organizations, have sent an amazing amount of funds to enable churches to be the hands of God, loving, being merciful to people in desperate need. Most churches throughout Ukraine, uh, especially evangelical churches, have become places of refuge. And they, their, their ministry has been tripled, perhaps even quadrupled, because of the ministry of being able to reach out to their neighbors. Awakening Church in Obolone, has had more unbelievers come into their church for refuge, for goods, for food, for medicine, for hygiene supplies than they've ever had in the past. Now, they live in a very heavily dense neighborhood. And uh, so this has given them an opportunity to reach out not only with the gospel, but in very practical ways. Secondly, I would ask you to pray. Psalm 46, verse 9 says that God makes wars to cease. We need this war to cease. The ministries that we take for granted here in Canada have been shut down for the most part because of this war. So this is not just two nations fighting against each other. This is a tremendous setback for the gospel because of, the, of all the former Soviet satellite nations. Ukraine was the most open for Christians. And they were, we, we, for instance, Send had just set up a, a center in Kiev to help churches begin to send their own out to various countries, surrounding countries, countries of the former Soviet Union, and not only to send them, but to start supporting them financially. And that has been shut down. That has been stopped. So instead of just being a receiving church, they've been started, we started to help them become a sending church. That is stopped. So pray 
for those ministries to start again. The second thing I would ask you to pray for is regardless of what happens, and if I were to talk with you, I'm pretty pessimistic of where things are going. It does not look good. It looks like Ukraine will be sacrificed on the altar of, of fearing a nuclear war. But pray that whatever the circumstances, that Ukraine will have a strong church. Many pastors, church leaders will will leave the country. They will immigrate to other countries. I've been going to Ukraine for the past 20 years, about twice a year, the odd time, three times a year. And every time I've gone there, somebody has approached me, either through a friend or, or through a friend of one of my contacts, and have asked me to help them immigrate to Canada. And uh, I always sort of smile and I say, well, you know, I haven't been sent here by God, and I'm not here to help you come to Canada. I'm here to help you stay as a strong Christian here in Ukraine. So there's a strong movement to leave the country, and for a lot of good reasons, reasons that I can identify with, I appreciate. However, let me say that no matter what, they need to have a strong church. We need to have young men and women who will step forward to fill the gap of, of leaders, pastors, teachers who will leave the country. So continue to pray for a strong church. Now, of course, if you've watched the news, you've seen the devastation of what the war has caused. The families that have been torn apart, the relationships that have been damaged. And I just ask you to, to pray for comfort, for healing, for a sense of God's, God's presence. And the one thing that, that has been there is that the believers in Ukraine are so grateful for your prayers, for your concern, for your generosity. I hear that every time I connect with one of them. They are so thankful for how believers in the West are standing with them through this difficult time. So one, thank you for your prayers, for your generosity. Number two, Pray for a strong church. No matter what happens, we need a strong evangelical church in Ukraine. We need a strong Canada. Probably sometime around July 1st, you sang our national anthem. And despite how you may feel or what political stripe you may resonate with, you sang, God, keep our land glorious and free. And that has never become more of an issue than it is today with all that we have experienced here. The pandemic has caused considerable division and chaos in our country. There have been divisions within families within communities, and even within the church. There has been widespread disagreement with our government. And this disagreement with our government came to a head this past January when people from all over the country blocked our borders, took over Ottawa with what they called the Freedom Convoy. And this issue is still being debated today. 
It's interesting, when I heard the sense Freedom Convoy, and I realized that brothers and sisters in Christ, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, some of them were very much behind this anarchist movement, if I can use that word, with this demonstration of how our society here in Canada, which had been so friendly to good order, was seemed to be pulling apart at the seams. I was disturbed. And as I read the Bible, my Bible, our Bible, our word from God, the word freedom is interesting. It talks about freedom from sin. Freedom to serve, freedom to love, freedom to forgive. I cannot find a place. Now, maybe some of you will be able to help me after the service. I don't find a place where it talks about freedom politically. Freedom in a nation. And so the question came to mind to me was, how should a Christian respond to our government, to this pandemic situation that has been so difficult. And my own appreciation is the fact that this is a God thing. And if anything he's teaching our nation is that it's beyond our ability, our scientific ability, with all the wonderful things that we've been able to do medically, democratically. This is challenging us. What is our responsibility during times like this before God? In answering this question, I want to draw to your attention several passages of Scripture that has guided my thinking, and I want to say right at the outset, these are principles. I don't have all the answers. I believe God does. But I want to set forth three things that we should remember as we deal with our pandemic and the new normal that we might have to live within. I know we all want to get back to normal, but I think we are going to be faced with a new normal that will challenge us. And then I want to draw your attention to four things that I believe we are called to do as Christians. The three things we need to remember are this. Number one, the church was birthed, our church, our ancestors, was birthed in a cruel and hostile dictatorship. We need to remember that. And if somehow you think I am stretching that or pushing that, read the first two chapters of Matthew that talks about Jesus' birth was be, as a baby. He was being threatened by Herod. And because Herod could not find him, he ordered all babies, all male babies under the age of two to be killed, to be slaughtered. And they were. The church, Jesus and his disciples, were opposed, strongly opposed, by the Jewish religious establishment. Stephen was martyred. And the persecution of Christians took place with the Apostle Paul, one of the main instigators and leaders before he met our risen Lord on the road to Damascus. So I want to remind you that the church was not birthed in a liberal democracy. It was birthed 
in a cruel, oppressive Roman dictatorship. And we need to remember that. Secondly, we need to remember that as Christians, we are first and foremost citizens of heaven. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul reminded the Philippian church who had special status before Rome. And as citizens of Rome, as citizens of Philippi, they enjoyed a very special, unique status. And yet Paul reminded them that they were not citizens so much of Rome or of Philippi, but they were citizens of heaven. And as such, it was their duty to give allegiance first to heaven, to give a support its policies, to encourage its values, to live its life. Peter, in his epistle, reminds his readers that they were aliens and strangers in this world. That's what you are. That's what I am. If you are following Jesus, if you have claimed him as your Lord and Savior, you're not first and foremost a citizen of Canada. You are a citizen of heaven. There was an old gospel song I grew up with. Maybe some of you would remember it. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. That's true. And even though we somehow want to stay as long as we can in this world, that is not what God chose us for. That is not why Christ redeemed you. That is not why Jesus went to the cross. That is not the hope you have of living forever on this earth. Our world tells us that we are living in the land of the living and going to the land of the dying. That's not true. That's not true for the believer. For the believer, we are living in the land of the dying. Death is all around us. And our hope, our secure confidence is that we are headed for the land of the living, face to face with Christ our Savior. The third thing we need to remember is that God is in control and has ultimate authority over all of history. I find it hard sometimes to keep that truth before me. But Psalm 11, verses 3 and 4, remind me of this very important truth. The psalmist raises the question, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? That's a good question. But the psalmist doesn't answer it. He basically leaves the question unanswered. The righteous can't do anything. But then he makes this statement in verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. God is in control. I find it hard sometimes to remind those that I Skype with or Zoom with in Ukraine that despite all the devastation and the horror they see round about them and the 
the tremendous grief that some families are experiencing and couples being torn apart, that God is in control. But we need to remember that. The scriptures are very clear. Putin isn't in control. Biden isn't in control. Trudeau, well, he knows he's not in control. God is in control. And that's why when hard times come, when our lives are devastated, when we are faced with an unfair assignment that hits us, perhaps a terminal illness comes our way, hits our family, a doctor gives us a bad diagnosis, Christians go to Romans 8, 28. And we read, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him and have been called according to His purpose. That is only true in the confidence that God is sovereign, that He is in control of every aspect of what goes on in our lives. So those are three things we need to remember as we face situations like the pandemic or like the war in Ukraine that is, that is so unbelievable. Number one, the church was birthed in a hostile, cruel, dictatorial system. That as Christians, first and foremost, we are citizens of heaven, aliens and strangers to this earth. And thirdly, that God is in control. But then there are four things a Christian is called to do. And the first thing I would call to more, and this is more of an inference from what we read about what the Bible says about itself, its own self-witness. But we need to view the events of history or our personal circumstances or our culture through the lens of Scripture. So if you want to know, what is God doing? Where is He with our pandemic? Where is He with this war in Ukraine? What is He doing? What's going on? We need to look at that through the lens of Scripture. Not let the values of our culture, of our circumstances, interpret Scriptures for us. The Scriptures is our guidebook for living. We don't always live up to them, but the Scriptures are there to point us to God, to point us to what He is doing. And they are our guidebook, our map to shape our thinking, to teach us how to live, and to point us to a Redeemer. And we must never let our culture, our circumstances, the events of history be the lens through which we understand reality. The second thing we need to do is we need to submit to government authority. And Darlene, this is where you struggled. Romans 13, 1-7 says everyone must submit. And Paul is writing to believers here Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. 
the authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Now, there's a limit to what Paul is writing. Paul knew and was impacted by governing authorities that were pushing him to disobey God. Paul knew what it was like to live under a tyrannical government. And Paul is not saying here that God is responsible for the Nero's, the Domitians, the Herods of his day. Neither the Putins, the Hitlers, the Idiomans of our day. But he is saying that ultimate authority is with God alone. And as believers, we are called to submit to our government. Nowhere do the scriptures encourage us, and Romans 13 is a hard scripture to handle when we are facing government that is putting up forth policies, perhaps even to marginalize us as believers. And I see that coming. That is happening. In fact, some of the language that we have heard coming out of our government this past year has suggested that some of our core values as believers is not Canadian. That statement is being used about how some of us believe. That is part of our culture. But Paul was very careful and was agreeing with Jesus. And he was not calling here for blind obedience to government. He was not suggesting that government should not be criticized when they encroach on areas of faith and truth. He was not suggesting that we give blind obedience when the government is pushing us to disobey what God calls us to obey. Christians are called to obey, disobey government when they cause us to go against God's will and to accept the consequences. And this is seen throughout Scripture. In Genesis or Exodus chapter 1, the midwives, the Hebrew midwives, disobeyed the government policy to kill all male babies. In Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to an idol. And they accepted the consequences. Daniel 6, the prophet Daniel refused to stop praying to his God three times as was his custom and accepted the consequences of being thrown into a den of lions. The apostles Peter and John in Acts chapters 4 and 5 were told to stop preaching the gospel. And they said very clearly to the authorities who made that demand upon them, we must obey God rather than men. And when they were flogged, for continuing to preach, continuing to be faithful to God's calling on their life. They were flogged. And the scriptures tell us, Luke tells us, that they left that flogging rejoicing for the privilege of suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ. The third thing we are called to do as believers is we are called to pray for our government. And I draw your attention to 1 Timothy 
chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Paul writes to young Timothy, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceable and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, I want to draw your attention, first of all, that Paul is not telling Timothy to pray for Nero's salvation. Now, he's not saying he shouldn't do that, but he's not saying to pray for the salvation of the leaders. His focus isn't on the spiritual character that needs transformation with the leader. And the leader in this particular case was Nero, who a few years later would martyr Paul and martyr Peter. He calls us first to pray for leaders that we as Christians might be authentic, faithful disciples of Jesus. That the policies would be good for the church. Would be good, would be helpful and encouraging for believers in following the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that the focus is that we might live a peaceful life, a quiet life in godliness and holiness. And this is good and pleases God who wants all people to be saved. So our prayer for government leaders is specifically focused on the advance of the gospel. The very reason why we are gathered here this morning. The very reason why you are meeting regularly within your community. To strengthen each other, to encourage one another, to bless one another. Because you want to see the gospel advance here in greater Toronto. The fourth thing that we are to do is more of an inference from the experience of the local church. Of the early church rather. And the Apostle Paul. And that is to use to the maximum the privileges we have because of the policies that we have here in Canada that are set and maintained by our government. Whether it's conservative, new democratic, liberal, or green. And we see that very clearly in the life of Paul and the early church. Two things that come out about the 200 years surrounding the early church from about the first century BC to the second century AD. Two phrases that come out. One is called the Pax Romanum, or to translate that from Latin into English, the Roman peace. And in this period of time, the period in which in the middle of it, the church was birthed, There was peace amongst warring countries, countries that had never, never gotten along. Now, this peace was maintained by a brutal Roman army, would not stand for any insurrection, would not stand for any civil disobedience. But there was a Roman peace, and this allowed armies, government officials, 
various individuals within the, the, the Roman Empire to travel freely. The Jewish leaders were able to travel freely throughout the Roman Empire, and as a result, there were synagogues almost in every major city of the Roman Empire. This was a Pax Romana. And because of this very thing, the gospel was able to spread freely at the time of the early church as it would not have been able either previously or after. The Pax Romana. Paul used it. The early church used it. There's another thing that comes along with the, and it, and it was sort of side by side with the Pax Romanum, and that we would call the Vi Romanum, the Roman roles. As Rome took over and expanded its empire, they created about 400,000 kilometers of roads throughout the empire. 85,000 kilometers were paved with stones, with cobblestones. Not the greatest thing to travel on, not easy on your shocks for your car, but much better than traveling through a wilderness or going over a mountain. This again made spreading the gospel, made life for the Apostle Paul as apostle to the Gentiles very easy. And so when Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 4, when the fullness of time had come, when the time had exactly, was exactly right. God sent for his son. And part of that being right was that there was transportation facility, there was peace that allowed communication, that allowed taking the gospel throughout the known world. One further thing that we saw, specifically in the life of the Apostle Paul, you see, the Apostle Paul used his Roman citizenship when it suited him. In the first place, in Acts chapter 22, a riot had broken out over one of his uh, gospel meetings. And uh, he was being blamed for it taking place. And so the commander of the army took the instigator, Paul, took him into the barracks, and was going to flog him. A very painful, a very challenging, very difficult experience, to say the least. Paul's turned to the person who was going to flog him and said, is it lawful for you to flog a Roman citizen? And immediately the individual stopped what he was doing. Because he knew that it was illegal, that he hadn't been tried, he hadn't been found guilty. And so Paul used his Roman citizenship. Yes, he was a citizen of heaven, we know that. We see that in his life. But in this particular case, he used his Roman citizenship to save him from a very painful experience. Later on, when Paul was arrested by the Jews and then turned over to the Roman authorities... He was defending himself. He had a desire to take the gospel to Rome to help the Roman church get established. And the procurator at the time was going to send Paul back to Jerusalem to be tried for the charges of sedition that he was being charged with 
by the religious Jewish establishment. The Jewish religious establishment was putting tremendous pressure on Festus, who Paul was standing before. And this Roman governor wanted to do the Jews a favor. So he said to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul said, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have done nothing wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. I do not refuse to die. Festus stood back and said, you've appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. And the book of Acts tells us that Paul was then sent from Jerusalem or from Caesarea Philippi to Rome, where he was able to minister to the Roman believers and where he was, was, was able to be tried and ultimately set free. We need to use what we have here in Canada, the privileges we have to be Canadian citizens. We can worship freely. And that's a blessing. And even as we've worshipped this morning, restricted somewhat by the reality of the pandemic, we are still free to worship in person. We are free to preach the Bible and preach the gospel. We can evangelize freely. But I think one of the greatest freedoms that we have, and many of us probably don't realize it because we let H&R Block or some other person do our taxes. But you know, the Canadian government allows us to give 75% of our taxable income to charitable organizations. Did you know that? 75% to Christian organizations, other organizations as well, but to charity. Many believers don't know that. And when you first see that, in the tax laws, you say, my goodness, our wonderful government allows us to support evangelism, allows us to support missions, allows us to support all these things. What a wonderful government we have. Well, guess what? They know that Canadians aren't that generous. They know that most Canadians don't give even the tithe that God asks from them. Most Canadians think that all the things we enjoy is our right. And so the government can nicely put in 75% because they know nobody will ever try to do that. But that's reality. And so one of the things we can do with our laws as they are, instead of money going to taxes, and I'm not suggesting you shouldn't pay your taxes, but you can support Christian missions. You can support the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada that stands before the government and challenges them when they see the government encroaching upon our freedoms. We can support ministry throughout the world generously. Now, I know from experience that believers support our own missionaries very, very well. We do a great job in standing with our missionaries in their times of need, in their times of difficulty, in their times when they need finances. I know that personally. The one area where we need to grow 
is to support national believers who know the language, know the culture, who are ready to sacrifice, who often sacrifice far beyond what any of us here in Canada in Canadian Christian ministries sacrifice for the gospel. That is an area where we need to grow. But the reality is this, is that we have the privilege here in Canada to advance the gospel lavishly through our givings. So how do we stand on guard for our land to be glorious and free? We remember our history. We were birthed in a dictatorship, a cruel dictatorship. That God is in control, finally and ultimately. And we are citizens of heaven. Strangers to this earth, but citizens in heaven. And what are we called to do? We are called to see the events of our lives. See our culture. See our world through the lens of Scripture. We are called to submit to our government. There is no call in Scripture for anarchy, for rebellion. The freedom that we are given as believers is free to serve, freedom from sin, freedom for forgiveness, to give forgiveness, to receive forgiveness, freedom to love others, freedom to worship. We can pray. Pray for our indigenous people. Pray for forgiveness for what our ancestors have done. Pray that in the future our government will react to indigenous people with peace and justice. Pray for ourselves that we will continue to be authentic followers of Jesus Christ regardless of government policies that will marginalize us. We are blessed to be a blessing. We are privileged to serve. We are children of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And no matter how this world is going right now and how you may see it, Revelation reminds us that the day is coming when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He will reign forever and ever. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are our ultimate teacher, that you take your word, your precious word, your word of truth, and you apply it to our hearts. We pray that you would come today in these moments and use the scriptures we have put forth to encourage, to comfort, to challenge, and to bless. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus.
Amen.